0: founder of Pacific Trade International, and its subsidiary, Chesapeake Bay Candle. In this episode, we start with May's childhood, growing up in Hangzhou, China. At the age of 12, she was selected among 80 students to be trained as a future diplomat. It was six years of training, and after she graduated, she attended the Beijing Foreign Studies University. Now, in response to the Tiananmen Square protests in 89, the Chinese government had assigned menial jobs to many of its youth and May was assigned to track mineral deliveries at a warehouse. Not surprisingly, it wasn't the line of work she was super passionate about, and eventually she would move to the U.S., where she wanted to return to the World Bank. She had worked part-time there during university, and there was a serendipitous hiring freeze at the World Bank that would alter her career path. So instead of working there, she worked at a desk job for a medical company, and while she would walk to and from the train station, she would stop by Bloomingdale's on 59th and Lex, and tour up and down the store, and stop at the home goods section. And after being completely underwhelmed at the offerings, she decided to create her own company, and that is when Chesapeake Bay Candle was born. Now a lot of you know I get so much joy out of learning about different sectors and industries, And May does not disappoint. I learned about the five key elements of candles. I learned about the fragrance and the most crucial element, which is the wick. But May also discusses the importance of scaling and distribution and how Target was such a wonderful partner and teacher for her in the industry. Since then, she has sold the business and has focused on creating more social impact. More recently, she started a group called Yes, She May, focused on elevating female-owned businesses. I hope you enjoyed this growth story that highlights grit, design, and a little dash of luck with the fantastic Mei Shi. Hi, Mei. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for inviting me. Oh my goodness, I was so excited to have you. And first, I'd like to thank Lu Zhang for the wonderful introduction to another wonderful guest. I just want to timestamp this conversation. We're recording around the holidays, and I'm sure many people and many homes are burning bright with scented candles from Chesapeake Bay candle and and Yankee candle and the like, which you created. And before we get into that and your business path, I always like to start with the story of where people grew up and where they came from. So if you don't mind sharing really where you grew up.
1: I grew up in China in a beautiful city called Hangzhou. It's where one of the dynasties of Song actually was established. So it's what we call the Geneva of Asia, and I grew up in a very nice part of the city, and I was growing up during the very impoverished time that China really was very closed in, was not interacting with the world. So it was, in a way, very different than what we have seen since 1979. In 1979, after President Nixon went to visit China, the diplomatic relationships opened the doors of China to the rest of the world. And China also realized that they needed a lot of career diplomats because they have not produced any for a few decades. And they decided rather than wait until university, they would start having kids that want to be trained for diplomacy at a very younger age. And I was one of the first group of kids at 12 to be enrolled in foreign language program in Hangzhou, which is a boarding program and a very much immersion program. So you went in you studied for six years and you learn English or German or French, Japanese too, in an immersion manner. So some of the lessons in, you know, culture, in history would be spoken in the language. So it's a pretty progressive program if you think about 1979. So very fortunate And I was there for six years, and then I went to Beijing to finish my diplomatic career training. It was at that time that I started working for the World Bank in China and opened me to a multinational global work environment. And unfortunately, when I graduated, it was 1989, and I, along with all my year of graduate, were sent away from Beijing and all the big cities so we could be prevented from gathering. (laughs) So long story short, I was sent to the northern part of China in Dalian, very close to Japan and South Korea. And my job was to look after minerals that China was exporting. And every day there was a truck coming in the morning, a truck coming in the afternoon to pick up a load. And my job for the entire day was to have a clipboard and check off when a truck comes. And I would not be able to practice English or learn to use my my background. So I basically quit. That was my story.
0: <laughs> how long did you count, you know, those minerals for or how long was that process? Less than two months, I have to say. That was enough.
1: It was also very different in the sense that I was already I had a boyfriend for a long time and he was living in Beijing and I was living now away from Beijing. So it was pretty difficult to go back to that kind of structure, very isolated, and the food was horrible. (laughs) So I decided to quit and started to apply to graduate program here in the US. And I was able to get enrolled in master's degree in University of Maryland, because I want to graduate and then work for the World Bank continuously. But it didn't happen. You know, every time I graduate, something seems to be. (laughs) going on. It was the first Gulf War between the US and uh, Iraq. I graduated in 92. Because US is the biggest donor to the World Bank, the bank decided there was going to be a hiring freeze the year I graduate. So once again, I found a very boring job in New York. And I was again, away from DC, where my husband at that time already got married before I came, was working in DC and I commuted between. New York and D.C. for about a year.
0: Was it as boring or more boring than counting minerals?
1: Well, I would say it's not boring. It definitely has more meaty work. That's what prepared me, I believe, for the future when I start to bring products in, even though my job at that time was export. And later on, I started doing a lot of import. But you learned a lot of basics for, you know, letter of credit, packing list, letter of credit, packing list, and all these things that is actually very detail-oriented. I also learned to do international financing through Exxon Bank because the product that we were exporting at that time was very high-tech. So a lot of times the U.S. government subsidized those exports through the loans from Exxon Bank. So I understand the, the bigger picture of how sort of with higher export value, there's a lot of other alternatives. But what was very interesting was that it was where they put me in the hotel. They put me next to the Bloomingdale's flagship hotel, right around the Columbus Circle. And most of the evenings, I have nothing to do. So afterwards, I would just stroll to Bloomingdale's. And I remember, you know how those salespeople always want to spray you some perfume. <laughs> right. through- use some lipsticks to try and most people don't want to be bothered and I right. love it I say <laughs> what are you selling today <laughs> so that was the beginning of something new because for someone coming from China who has never seen the amount and the variety of products it was like a bird out of the cage and I love design I love beautiful things and I would always wonder to see the jewelries and I would go up to the second floor. You see the most trendy designers at that time. It was Donna Karen and Kevin Klein. And I remember saying, "Wow, I really like that. We are using menswear fabric, but still very feminine. You know, tailoring and really accentuates this confident woman." And then you go up every floor; it gets a little bit more and more boring until the top floor. It's <laughs> you the.
0: Home goods, right, right.
1: Home goods. And in the early 90s and late 80s, it's still very classic. So classic as in very traditional. So the furniture has a lot of legs, that are very ornate. they have a lot of gilted touch, and it's heavy. The colors are mahogany or cherry, and then the prints are very small. They look like your grandmother's pottery or bedding. I said, someone who wear menswear fabric in Donna Karen certainly wouldn't go home to this. It's so heavy, you know, it's so classic, but it's so heavy. And it's so take up so much space. And everyone in New York have such small space. Wouldn't they want something more bright or contemporary, a little bit more streamlined, so that it's simpler. And every night when I talked to my husband, his name is David, I said, You know, I see this and that, and I just saw this again. And I think after a while, he get tired of me going back and forth every week. And uh, it was difficult because, you know, you're a new immigrant. You don't have a lot of family. It's a hard thing for a young couple. So he said, why don't you come back and we start a new business? And that's going to be in uh, home. I think he's really the more entrepreneurial one because remember i was always trying to be uh, working in big corporations big organizations making an impact in the world and i never thought about being an entrepreneur he is a scientific background but before he came to the us he's already working for some of the more progressive state-owned companies with some high-tech trading so he's always itching to start something And like many people at that time, we see definitely the framework is that it has to be something about U.S. and China, because that's when the doors were open. The 90s saw the honeymoon period between U.S.-China relations. There was not a lot of the the kind of issues you you run into now. There's more sort of open-mindedness to each other. There's more exploring of the culture, exploring of the, the language and the people's side. And we say we're going to do something there. And something about home space seems to be safe to us because it's not as competitive. We definitely see the gap. I feel there's something that is not catching up yet in home. And we went back to China and asked a lot of friends who, remember I was trained in the diplomacy world, but not many of them, all of them become diplomatic officers. A lot of them actually pivoted to become diplomat in um, foreign trade. So they were one of the first crop of people involved in state-owned foreign trade companies. So I went back and asked them, what are you doing? What kind of product you are selling? And slowly but surely, I heard from them. And there's a wide range of home products. Mostly they are lower end, a lot of electronics, and I'm not interested because I already know that I want to put some design sort of elements into it. So that's how we started. It's a very crazy two people that's amazing. decide to test their luck.
0: So rewind a little bit. How long were you going back and forth from your job to Bloomingdale's and talking to David in the nights about this discrepancy that you wanted to kind of transform? But was it 2 weeks, 2 months, 2 years? No, it's a year.
1: It's a whole year. Every single week I catch a train at seven o'clock in the morning to go to New York. And every Friday, my boss gave me time off at three and I took the train back. And I work a lot on the weekends too because they have a lot of visitors, hospital doctors from China that needs to see the machineries before they buy them. And I think one of the reasons they hired me was because I, I speak Chinese. So I can facilitate the conversations between the accusons or GEs of the world with the hospital. But I wasn't playing any role that to me was satisfying. And I was not finding my role to be I mean, they could have given me more exploration things to do rather than pigeonholing me. that's one of the reasons I always tell my team, you know, when I started having managers, I have a boss at that time who was not even younger than I mean, I think she's younger than me. And she's afraid of me a little bit because I speak Chinese. So she always managed to have work at 4.45 p.m. (laughs) And she would start loading me up, which ensured that I can't leave the office on time. So every time when there's an opportunity to let me shine, she always took the credit. So I always remember that experience. One of the reasons that I was miserable was because of that. When I was working for the World Bank, I feel I have the freedom to explore. I can really shine in the sense that allows them to have a better conversation without going through a lot of protocols. So this time when this happened, I reminded myself all the time that I would never allow anyone working for me or with me to explore people working for them, to really allow them to understand if you're a competitive manager, you should always train the next person to be even more competitive than you, because that's how companies grow. It's not by shackling them is by liberating them but it's very hard i understand the bigger the organization the more structure and more of the abilities with a ability look for b and the b look for c right so starting having more and more inefficiency because people are not emboldened to speak their mind right so that was one of my early lessons but no it's time
0: Going to the business. And so then, after a year of going back and forth and seeing this discrepancy in the Bloomingdale's scaling elevator floor, so you see this discrepancy. What was the business that you and David ended up launching?
1: So, we decided to call ourselves Pacific Trade. As you can see, we don't know what we're going to be trading. We know it has to do with US China. We love the name. We don't want to pigeonhole ourselves because we see a wide range of consumer products for the home. We're not sure yet. So we decided we're going to call ourselves Pacific Trade International, and we will go to the market to test the product. We got maybe 10 different categories. We got everything from candles, which is very decorative at that time. We got some silk flower. You know, people buy them so that they don't have to water them. There was a time when it was very popular. We have some toys. We have some other, can't even remember what they are, but there was at least six to 10 categories. And it was so late when we got all the samples in 94 that we could only attend one trade show. And that was in September in Charlotte, North Carolina. It was a regional gift show that's open to mostly mom and pop gift stores for Christmas. The big shows usually happen in summer in Atlanta and in New York. So we, we missed those by the time the sample arrived and we decided to go there. And it was a very small 10 by 10 booth. And we didn't even know what will happen once we get there, but they gave you a bunch of tables in the front and we rented some sh- shelves. So we put other things because the candle is so small. It has to be in the front, right? Other things bigger, like the treats goes in the back. And I have still pictures of those booths. It looks like a hodgepodge of a bazaar, you know, it looks like a Sunday market when other people have only one category you know, with a beautiful brand. We didn't have that. But what is interesting is of all the product and we had a lot of business, we never stopped writing orders. And usually the small stores, they only place two, $300 orders. We got so many orders and almost 60, 70% of them were for this very unremarkable candle. We were scratching our head, but, you know, we were just wondering, what is it about the candle that everybody loved? But We got so much orders every day. At the end of the day, we send orders back to our one part-time assistant and the next morning she will ship those orders. So we immediately understand that very soon we have to focus on one product, which is the candle. And this year we will just ship what we were given, but next year I'm going to start putting my design in them. And we were very fortunate. We were fast delivering. We already got a 20-foot containers worth of hodgepodge of products mixed in from China. We got another container by October, and by the end of that year, with only a few months in our history, we shipped half a million dollars of wholesale.
0: So, I don't, I'm not as familiar in the <laughs> internet. <laughs> wow, this is crazy. So, I'm not as familiar with the candle market in the mid 90s, but what do you think it was? So, you went from whatever, six to 10 products. And for whatever reason, the market and the supply or the demand says we need more candles. But what was it? Was there no candle alternative? I mean, I know by brand name now, Yankee Candle. I think
1: it's because we have a very decorative candle. It's called Glow Candle. So, it's a round sphere. And it has designs on the outside. When you burn it, it looks like a stainless glass. So I think it's that church-looking, glass-looking candle that capture the imagination, right? So imagine you get this candle. You know, Americans burn their candles in the winter. They burn their candles all the time, actually, to look like they're celebrating or they're entertaining. And obviously later on we understand also why people burn candle because it's a very affordable luxury it's something impulsive that's why stores even now on my little website little shop we have two brands one of mine and one of another company they do well it's almost like when you go to the grocery stores you know where you check out there's some lipsticks or things that it's easy that that's probably the same it's impulsive And when they see something new, I think that usually captured their attention. So we went back and that it's the beginning of my candle life. So since then we have launched a brand, which is inspired by my home at that time called Chesapeake Bay. We built three factories, one in China, in Hangzhou, one in Vietnam, and one in Glen Burnie, Maryland. And we have sold millions and millions and millions of candles over the years. So... It's been a very long and rewarding <laughs> journey for me.
0: Well, so I don't know where to go now. I mean, 26 years later, you've sold a lot of candles. I know two years ago, you actually sold the business. Can you walk through two decades of candle experience and I really the thought process? Are
1: The candle I bought into the market was very good. But in January or February of that year, I think it's in late January, each year in New York, the Jacob Java Center, a tremendously important trade show called international gift show and we we brought this time mostly the candles we look very professional but we don't have a lot of order as it turns out after the christmas season people don't buy that kind of candle anymore so it gave me an opportunity even though i was devastated to walk around the show and i noticed that the candle companies that are popular are those with fragrances and that's when The aha moment came and say, of course, because with my candle, people don't need to burn them. They just need to sit there where if you are a fragrance candle, people want to burn them. It's almost like a consumable and you go back and buy more. So that's what focused my attention even more. So imagine from it's like a funnel, right? You start from home and then you focus on candle and then you focus even more on fragrance candle. And that is the beginning of how I use a lot of design elements. So when we started, rather than follow Yankee Candle or others, I did candles without jars. So it's just a pillar, but it has beautiful textures with very interesting combination of fragrances. So things that people don't really think they go together like lavender with vanilla or citrus with mint. So it's refreshing. And the labels are very contemporary. I like the more sort of less is more kind of design. And we also add another dimension of seasonality. So by the time we were two years old, we were already in Bloomingdale, my, my wonderful store that inspired <laughs> me there. We were in Nordstrom, Bed Bath & Beyond. And then I knock on the door of uh, Target, which basically changed the company entirely. Once you work with a fashion leader like Target, they also train you to become more sort of from a system perspective, agile. So you have to learn to be very good with logistics. You have to be able to predict sales so that your global supply chain will be able to respond, not only to the need of the hundreds of stores, but the seasonality of that, right? So imagine when we have something like a pumpkin pie, it only sells for six weeks. really from September to you know somewhere around Thanksgiving. And it has very high demand during those weeks, but right after Thanksgiving, no one wants to see it. It's the same with Christmas tree. So if we respond to it, our shipping window from Asia takes six weeks. So there's a lot of formulations of forecasting and there's a lot of confidence that needs to be put in the warehousing. So I learned a lot. I, I become more of a growing company there's a lot of pains but i was very surprised how much goes into supplying a big company like target you know you need to really update everything in your organization to catch that growth spur.
0: right it reminds me a bit the way you describe it a bit like fashion in terms of cycles where there's a season and really designers present forward what they think will happen in three six nine months of a season But how does that work in terms of when you started this, there's the creation side, but then there's also the merchandising side. And you had mentioned that really the merchandising side, the logistics, the operations was a really critical component that Target and the other retailers taught you. What did you prioritize first in learning or did you do both at the same time?
1: And I have a little secret. I'm actually coming up with a book. In this book, I think anybody who wants to understand how to scale their business, they should buy it because I went into such great detail to talk about how I learned to grow with companies such as Target. It was in the 90s. They, too, were expanding from 800 stores to 900 to 1,000. And then at the peak, I think they have over 1,500 stores, right? So they were also looking for vendors who can really grow with them, not only in terms of manufacturing, but in terms of innovation and newness. The key word is newness. You know why they partner with all the designers. Remember the years when they were partner with people like Jason Wu, they partnered with Missoni so that they can bring that Tajay design elements into a more affordable home. I think it's actually started with Michael Grave, who is a great Chicago based architect. And he came up with this idea of design for less, right? So he designed a whole collection of kitchen gadgets, that has high design value, but very affordable. And I was at that time thinking about knocking on their doors. So it was the right moment that I met the right buyer who is very young, who wants to put her sort of stamp in that department. And I designed the collection just for them, very fashion forward. The color stories are very European, more bold, and just more target, you know, more contemporary. I think there's something about DNA when you are partners. It's not the bigger, the better. It's really if you have similar DNAs, if you really call the same quality of your growth in the same way. And that allows you to feed off of each other's sort of initiative. So merchandising and logistics has been probably the first thing we learned from them. And then, as we were able to overcome the initial shock, like it's a shock in your system, because instead of shipping, let's say, 10,000 packages, you're shipping 20 containers of 40 foot size. Imagine when you were driving, those 40 foot size, first order for Target is about 20 of that size. And we have to package it for each distribution center so that it's all scanned by machine. And it's a story that I wrote in that book that I'm going to publish with Wiley. It's going to launch next year, hopefully very soon on Amazon. It's called Burn. It's about my passion as an immigrant, as a young woman at that time. How do I find a path for myself? And I hope that many people will see it's very fact-driven, but it's also giving you that hopefully a vivid picture of how you go from here to here. And it's all within us. But you really need to put the elements and the steps together.
0: Well, it reminds me, and I can't wait to read it, so I will definitely put it on my list when you tell me it's okay to buy. It reminds me of a book conceptually called The Messy Middle by Scott Belsky. And it's it's about- entrepreneurship, but similar to what you're saying, most people think businesses are so successful, and it's up and to the right in terms of growth. But there's a lot of ups and downs and ups and downs. And even when you go up, you're going to fall, but then get back up. And it's this kind of burning passion that ignites entrepreneurs to keep going and going.
1: I think some of our failures really made some of our successes more spectacular because of that. Because those who never fail would never understand what it takes to succeed. And I can tell you that in that book, there's a lot of failures. Oh, tell me more. (laughs) You know, I pissed off the buyer in a major way. So there's a lot of lesson learned. That's why when I looked at the title of your podcast, I said, that's so important because people want to be, they want to choose success, right? They think success means you're always successful. Right. Absolutely not true. At least not for me.
0: Well, speaking of one of your failures, can we talk about Bliss Living Home? Yes. (laughs)
1: Yes. <laughs> well, it's one of those failures. That's, it's a spectacular failure, right? If I have to be failing once, I want to be failing like that. So <laughs> You're such an
0: overachiever, fail. even in failure. I,
1: so, Bliss Living was conceived when we were moving our manufacturing from China to Vietnam. There was a very high anti dumping duty in 2002 applied to Chinese candles because of the concern that it's too low. So we have to choose to move out of China, and I choose to move into Vietnam. When we did that, it means that the entire organization in Hangzhou was going to have to stop all the manufacturing members with us that has brought their families to the new city to make it their home, will all of a sudden lose their job. So I feel sad because not only did they become a very integral part of our family, they also have a lot of great skills. They learn so fast each season how to make new things and they're so hungry. Some of them never even have high school education but they taught themselves English. They were able to communicate. They were able to understand all our English requirement from different vendors and different retailers. I just feel losing them, it's such a big loss for us. Well, I wanna keep the community there and I decided I really like bedding, and I think there is something missing in bedding, which is exciting designs that is not repetitive. Remember, it goes back to my days when I hated the small prints. I said, let's make bedding that speaks to a modern but global attitude. So I started to keep this group of people and set up a company called Bliss Living Home. The idea is designing home design, mostly fabric or soft home textile that is more contemporary. You know usually before me home textiles are either solid or small repeat. So imagine when you think about prints it's a roll right you have a design on the the metal roll that is carved with the design and it just keep printing and printing so that's why it's repetitive you don't have the beginning and you don't have the end. What I did which is because I don't know the actual work of printing very well is I designed sort of a cropped design of one big piece. So instead of printing rotary, it become a silk screening process. So I was the first to come up with oversized design scale. And they're so big, we have like chrysanthemum flowers, two little petals, two big petals across the whole bed. They're very beautiful. They're also extremely wasteful. So a lot of times if there's a little problem with the one print, it's knocked down and they start again. So all of those, I did not know. But the design was great. As soon as we started our catalogs, all the major companies copy us, you know, because we are very friendly with our Target. They actually joke, guess whose catalog is always on our textile team's bed, you know, the weekly meeting is your catalog. And I have so many people copying me, but it's very expensive. And because in candle making, we're very vertical. We control all the process from design, lab, manufacturing, distribution, after distribution service. For textile, usually you need a meal, who's the weaver that weaves the raw material, the fabric. And then it goes to a printer to print the design. And then it comes to my factory, who's the com- who changed those people from making candles to making bedding. And we finished the tailoring of, you know, making of the bedding. So that is a much longer supply chain. And the minimums are much higher when you are talking about fabric, 5,000 meters. I know it's meters, it's 5,000 yards, right? Candles has minimum, but it's not that high. So in the end, we cannot produce enough variety. And our price point was on the premium side. So it becomes very difficult. And let's be honest, I was running two separate companies. My Bliss Living brand is m- normally at levels with Neiman's, Saks, and nice companies. High-end retailers. It would be so expensive for Target, and I'm not ready to give them the name yet. So at the end, I have to choose one, and that's very sad, but we just can't make it work. So one thing is you want to be in that space. Another thing is you really need to understand what are the restrictions, what are the Similarities and differences. And I certainly has a lot of good reason to start a business there, but I don't think I was in the right place for that business model.
0: How long did you do both Bliss Living and the Candle business before saying
1: four years at least? I have two teams. Very difficult. One team just for the Bliss Living business. One team that is for candle, one is on the fifth floor, one is on the eleventh floor, my always back and forth, back and forth. Some days I forgot when I'm giving interview, which company I'm giving interview for. <laughs> Corny is laughing because she can not see me doing that. And so,
0: so it seems like it's less of a failure versus just lack of time because you only have 24 hours a day. But yeah, after unwinding,
1: it's also the business model, you know, when your channel is mostly specialty and high-end the focus is more consumer direct, right? When you work with big companies like Target, Bed Bath & Beyond, that's really more like, you know, the merchandising, the developing of programs. So I work with Target actually 16 months ahead, very early. So... We work on trend, we even visited different destinations. We always travel together to trade shows in Europe or even we go to China sometimes. So there's a lot of collaboration beyond just sitting down for an actual product review. We collaborate on the very beginning of the design journey. And I really enjoy that. It's one of the few companies that open themselves up for that kind of collaboration. And I think you can see the results. I wish that more retailers have that approach because it only makes them stand out. It's not a, another me too product. It gives a very refreshing positioning for a target. Otherwise, between Walmart and Amazon, it's very hard for another big company. But they, they find a path and I think they stay very true to their path. And I'm very thankful for that.
0: It's nice to know because they are my favorite retailer outside of just broadly Amazon. But can we rewind a little bit? Because you mentioned that the pipeline to work with them is so much in advance than I, even I would think I would guess six or nine months. But in the oh, in, the, in yeah. the world of candle, I'm so curious, after 20 plus years in the business, if you're doing this every you know 16 months or 18 months, what is the forecasting of candle life in terms of, okay, once you go scented candle... Is it different combinations of scents or is it the style of the candle holder? I'm just more curious about those details.
1: You would think that it's such a simple concept, but remember, candles have five elements. It has wax, it has color, it has fragrance, it has different shape and size of the vessel. And then most importantly is the wick, right? The wick actually helps the experience of the candle burn. So if it's too small, you would have wax not consumed, and they become a wall, like like a well. The candle fire goes down, and it's not ideal when the wick is too big. It also becomes too big of a flame, and it produces a lot of soot, so that your house sometimes gets those black soot on the wall. So it's always a fine balance in our R and D uh, office to find the right size wick, and it cannot produce all these side effects. And it needs to balance so that it's a nice and clean burn. Sometimes we have multiple wicks. I'm the one that started the trend with three wick candles, And then I added five wicks. (laughs) So when you have five wicks, some wicks go down. And then you need to make sure that they're not too soft, that when there's a pool of wax, it gets bended into the wax, right? So there's a lot to go into that. But the biggest driver of innovation and design is fragrance. So fragrance, as you can imagine, it's very much an emotional experience. It's one of the most underutilized sensory, in my view, particularly when it's about marketing. Our vision and our hearing has been explored. There is so much to assault us. When we go out, we have ad, we see ad, but our fragrance and sense of smell is the one that's most criminal, right? It's one of the first sense that we develop as a human, is the last sense we lose as a human. So another interesting thing is that the nerve ending for smell is directly connected to the nerve ending of memory. So that's why you never smell something and say, oh, it's good. You always say, oh, it reminds me of that trip to China, that bamboo tree, or it reminds me of my trip to Paris with my boyfriend or my grandmother's cookies or my grandfather's you know, tobacco. It's because of that memory connection. So it has this very powerful undertone to make you feel happy, sad, or liberated or peaceful. So there's so much we could do with fragrance. It's amazing that still there's a lot that people
0: don't know about. It. Oh, I am so excited. Just I am i can't stop smiling because your five part analysis or definition of a candle kind of blows my mind because it's so simple and I take it for granted. But when you actually dissect it, I love that. And it, I just, I love knowing that. A lot of
1: opportunities, right? Right. And I hate to say this about my book, but one of the chapters was completely devoted to the art of fragrance Mm -hmm. and to the hope that those of you sitting in Silicon Valley, please, please, please start looking into that because I had lost my dad to Alzheimer's. And whenever I went to see him, I brought him those cookies from Canton, you know he grew up with his family in Canton. And immediately it seems that he recognized me more because it brought back, I guess, those memories of growing up. And I was wondering, and I have started to follow some researchers at Columbia University, that maybe there are ways that we can treat some Alzheimer patients or people with dementia some fragrances at certain time of day that allow them to open up certain memories that at least help them enjoy the moment a little bit more. That's completely possible because one of the last thing I did at the company that I'm very happy for, for what I did, a collection called Mind and Body. It's a connection that I wanted to use more of aromatherapy. So rather than just say, this is a you know lavender candle, that is a rose water candle, I really want to connect the effect of fragrance with the fragrance itself. So that if you know you cannot go to sleep, maybe you should try the lavender candle. If you really want to make yourself feel very energized, maybe you should try lemongrass. It's called a mind and body collection. And I think that's really the collection that put us on the map. Because if you check it on Amazon, it's organically searched. It's always on the top page. But it's also very affordable because this whole idea of designing for everyone has always been something that I personally believe in. I come from a country where when we were growing up, we cannot afford many things. So to me, I want something that we can design for a teacher. My mom was a principal of a school. So I always have a mind in my mind asking, can the teacher afford this? Can the teacher afford that? When you ask me that question, it really gives me permission to talk about it. But not only is fragrance very emotional; it's also very trend driven. A fine fragrance has trend, so that also influences home fragrance. And then you you put elements of color and font, and treatment of texture. That's where your innovation and fun start.
0: Well, I honestly could ask you about the candle business for hours and hours, but I will I'll save that for a private conversation. I'd love to ask just a few questions I've asked all of my guests, starting with who or what inspires you?
1: Who oh, and what inspire me? There are so many people that I found myself admiring. One of them actually is the German chancellor, Merkel. I feel she's so confident. Obviously, from design perspective, I don't find her particularly sort of setting the trend for women in that sense. But I also like that about her. She's not politicizing anything. She's trying to be a good leader and she say what she wants to say and she do what she feels is the right thing to do. She's very consistent. And she gives me the hope that people can see that women is not a charity case. We don't need a number just to show we are capable. We are capable and we can make the progress that is very much needed. I hope you see that I don't have a glamorous person as my role model, but that's who I am. I'm actually very inspired by her.
0: When you were starting the business, did you have a mentor or a role model that helped you other than target as a business, but you know, <laughs> a, a person or a team that just helped you a lot in terms of your thinking and your mindset?
1: I would say there's always people you read about. Steve Jobs, you read about all the people that is successful. I wouldn't say there is one role model. I think people that inspire me tend to be one that is very innovative. I'm not someone that liked uh, the story of how they make something cheaper than anyone else. I always like the people that make things completely different from scratch, just knock everything down and build it from scratch. I like that attitude of an innovator and a visionary. People with vision always get a lot of respect from me. I know that they are overstated, but I like people who, does not talk a lot. They go out and they change the world. They don't need to be mispopular or mispopular. Oprah still inspires me a lot because the way that she stands for things that as a person she believes in. And there are many great women leaders before me and right now that I think as we enter into a whole new world next year, I'm looking forward to a new reality that would unleash even more women leaders.
0: One thing I just want to ask you with... Over 25 years of business success, I'm sure along the way you've had fears and anxieties, concerns about meeting quota or making this logistical thing happen. But along the way, what drove you most? Was it fear of failure? Was it success? Was it financial? I'm just curious some of the drivers if you could expand on that in terms of how you felt and some of the things along the way to share.
1: As a business owner, obviously financial bottom lines are very important as a new immigrant at that time. We don't have a big cushion to fall into. I would say what inspired me is the sense that I want to achieve. It's not fear. I'm not fearful of failure. I want to succeed because so often I was the second child in the house. Uh, My sister always is a very dominant figure in my life. And I always feel that I need to prove myself to be successful. I'm not worried about failure. I want to s- prove that I can do it. And I also don't want to disappoint people who trusted me. So when I started having very large orders, I never want to disappoint people. That's why I'm almost fanatic when it's about customer service. You know, I feel for the consumers. I started the business Yes, She May for women's business and it's a dropship model. So a lot of women ship consumer orders directly And when they're delayed because of a holiday, I fear that we're going to lose those consumers because to me, that sense of that trust, you know, they could give their dollars to so many organizations, but they decided to try a brand new company, that's trust and it's earned. You don't own it, you earn it, right? So that sense of customer service is very, it's that blind trust that people put in you And I told everyone in my organization, I have built an incredible credibility in this industry because I would rather lose money if I can make it up to the customers. So that has been my very clear model for the last 26 years, that you're not in business for one shot. You're not in business for one purchase order. You are in it for the long haul. And it's your credibility that's on the line every single time and never try to lose sight of that.
0: It's interesting because I'm sure if I asked you 26 years ago versus today, your definition of success would be different, but I'll ask today, what is your definition of success for you now?
1: The definition of success for me now is not measured by financials. Obviously, that will be something to have a reference point. You know, there's now unicorns. When I was growing up in business, there was no unicorns. So now, now, not only are there unicorns, there are female-founded unicorns. So if you go by absolute size, it's very hard to feel a sense of accomplishment. What I would consider myself successful is if I have a vision And I put 100% of myself into that vision, and that vision has a shape. And it's a formula that if we have a formula, and if we know we can have fundings to put into it, then we can succeed. That to me is success. I don't need to prove how big that actual model is. But if that model has a formula, and it has an impact So another element is the social impact. I did this new business because I do feel this is really something I want to do. I was very fortunate to grow the business because I know so much about trade or I was able to learn it. Not many people, particularly women, have what I had, which is the lever to pull for manufacturing, for design, for research. And that's what can give them a whole new wind to grow. And I want to be able to see them growing that
0: way. I'd love to hear more about that. And also, if you could expand on looking back at your career, one question that a few of my guests have started mentioning is how much luck has been involved in their life. And so I'm sure it's a, a bit of a combination, but I would love to hear your thoughts on how much of it was luck, how have, much of no it was skill. no idea skills. why I'm
1: laughing. You would be laughing too, because the subtitle of my book is how grit design and a dash of luck. (laughs) That's amazing. (laughs) A success story. I think they use the word luck in a very sarcastic way because remember, every time I graduated, I didn't have what it takes. Many people would think it's bad luck. Actually, sometimes you can turn that around, right? Had I gone into a really big PR company, I probably would never move. So I think the idea of luck is important. To say it in another way, it's the timing. It's really when you do something and why you do something that defines whether you're going to be successful or not. So the bubbles of the dot-com was a perfect example at that time. There is a bubble because they don't really understand how company really has to have all these ingredients to succeed in the early 2000. And now 20 years later, it's a whole different ballgame. So I do feel there's such a thing as luck, but it's a better way to say is that you need to find your own moment, but it's a very hard thing to know when is the right moment.
0: Yeah, that's that's a super hard, but I can't wait to read your book. The last question we talked a little bit about bliss living and that being a spectacular failure in your mind, but what are some of the biggest growth moments you've had from that, whether it's bliss living or other parts of the candle business? But can you share upon maybe one or two of the biggest growth moments that you could remember?
1: I think the growth moment is to realize that to find when you should stop, I think it's the hardest thing. For people who is known for being resilient or for not taking no for an answer, it's very hard in a career, in a relationship, be it a customer relationship or intimate relationship or employee relationship, when that is time to say stop. It's another conversation. All I have to say is that It cannot be a negative in your life. It cannot become a stress. And rather than making you feel that it is a a source of inspiration and excitement, it adds to your life. It cannot become something that diminish your confidence as a businesswoman or as an individual. So I think that's the biggest lesson learned is giving things up is a good thing. It's a moment where you realize you don't have to be perfect. You can accept loss. You can cut your loss and still be intact. And that's where it's most difficult, I think.
0: Now, what's next for Mei Shi?
1: Yes, she may. <laughs> we played with the name. Yes, she may. It's this new website that I launched during the pandemic because a lot of women designers, their mom and pop customers are all closed. So We launched and we're able to onboard over 60 brands from all over the world. They're from Brazil, from Peru, from Europe, uh, South Korea, and we're expanding even though we haven't been able to go travel to any trade shows. If you know of any, Designers that have amazing design. We don't want to be open platform because I do feel people need some kind of curation. They need to know what works and what's not. And I don't want to be a platform that people feel like they're finding needles in a haystack. So we hope to see how we can grow this business. Where can
0: people find out more about Yes She May?
1: It's a website. It's Yes She May. And we have newsletters also. We would love to hear from women entrepreneurs, even if you're not in the consumer product business, we really want to have this community of not just consumers, but supporters of our women founders. It would be good if we can help each other for growing the business or for mentoring, for new ideas.
0: I love this ecosystem you're creating. So I am looking forward to learning more about that and also reading the book that it comes out next year.
1: Excellent. I will be in touch. So... We would let you know when it's going on sale. I think they're going on pre sale pretty soon. I'm very looking forward to it myself. And you see the words resilience and you see the words luck. So you wouldn't miss it.
0: May, thank you so much. I enjoyed this conversation a lot.
1: You have great questions. I enjoyed it
0: too. <laughs> thank you so much. I appreciate it. I'll be in touch. Bye bye.